From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Joshua Gordon is director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the lead federal agency responsible for research on mental disorders, and he's in Syracuse to pre- present Grand Rounds at Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. He made time in his schedule for HealthLink on Air, so thank you for being here, Dr. Gordon. You're welcome, Amber. It's my pleasure. Now, earlier this year, the NIMH released the first data set from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, ABCD study. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is a great uh, effort. It's really a collaboration between many of the different institutes at the National Institutes of Health. Um, And NIMH is responsible for, among other things, the storage and release of the data. So this is an attempt to understand how the brain develops through the crucial period of adolescence and how that brain development affects the risk for illnesses like substance abuse, uh, um, anxiety disorders, depression, etc. So we're studying 10,000 children starting at age 9, and we're going to follow them and watch them grow and develop over the next 10 years. So this is a very expensive but really wonderful study that's going to tell us a lot of information. And one of my favorite aspects of the study is the fact that the data don't belong to the scientists who are gathering it. The data belong to the public. So as soon as that data is gathered and verified, it is released to researchers all around the world so they can ask the questions that are really going to set the stage for breakthroughs in the future. Very cool. Now, where do these kids come from? How are you? These kids are coming from all over the United States. In particular, there's a focus on several things. Number one, we want a representative sample. So we're oversampling for folks from disadvantaged backgrounds, from underrepresented minorities, because we know those are really key uh, demographics, they're really key people that we want to make sure we have uh, data and research that is relevant for them. Um, The other uh, aspect is we're trying to get uh, folks from rural areas as well as urban areas, so not your usual, you know, major medical center sample of folks who live in a big city. We really want to make sure that this sample is representative of kids all across America. So are you uh, connected with pediatricians or? Most of the children are being recruited through schools. Because we don't, yeah, okay. we don't want to get a sample of people who are ill. We want to get a sample of children who are just the average everyday children who are going to go on and develop the illnesses that our children develop. Uh, and so that we can really understand what that process is like and how, in particular, how brain development contributes to either risk for disease or actually resilience. We're hoping to learn how children who stay well, how that works too. Interesting. Now, it sounds like it's a little early. Do we know yet? Do we have any sort of of overview on the physical or mental health assessment of so they're nine years old, right? They're nine and ten years old, these kids, uh, and the vast majority of them are well. But there are some indications uh, that we are tapping into something here that's really going to give us information that's helpful. Uh, the, there is a, a surprisingly high rate of things like suicidal thoughts in this group of children. Um, there's a high rate of exposure to uh, abuse, physical abuse and, and, and mental abuse. Uh, so um, this is unfortunate, but it does mean that we're going to be able to study the impact of those things on the development of illnesses later on. We're going to be able to understand what's become a really important crisis in the United States that's probably not talked about enough, but the rise of suicidal 
thoughts and behaviors and even suicide attempts in uh, children, especially in the preteen age. So we're going to be able to learn a lot from this group of, of courageous volunteers. Um, I definitely have some other questions for you about suicide, but mm -hmm. it's a little alarming for me to hear that you're seeing that in 9- and 10-year-olds. It is incredibly alarming. It is really compelling, though. Um, it's not terribly frequent, but we see enough of it that it, it raises one's eyebrows, more than eyebrows. It, it pulls at the heartstrings. Um, it's encouraging, though, that there's this concerted effort to delve into sort of the cause or where that's coming from. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's encouraging. Now, your own research, your personal research, um, personal professional research, has focused on neural activity in mice carrying mutations relevant to psychiatric disease. Can you explain sort of what that means, what, yeah. you're, what you've looked at? Sure. So uh, we know that a large part of the predisposition uh, to contract mental illnesses is due to genetics. That means that there are genes that we all carry which raise our risk for mental disorders. But what we don't know is how those genes actually result in changes in the brain that result in changes in behavior that uh, lead to disruptive symptoms. Um, that's what my scientific life's work has been trying to discover. In particular, we focused most of our efforts on one particular gene. It's one group of genes on one of your 22 chromosomes, and it... Um, if you're missing this group of genes, you have a very high likelihood of developing schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And we've studied the impact of missing those genes in a mouse model on some important symptoms that really cause disability in schizophrenia that is cognitive symptoms. So people with schizophrenia don't just have hallucinations and delusions, that, you know, the psychosis that people think about, but they also have tremendous difficulty with things like balancing checkbooks, uh, remembering where, uh, actually navigating through cities, um, figuring out uh, uh, how to make it in life in general, even when their psychosis is, is controlled by medications. So understanding these cognitive symptoms and how, in particular, the genes that lead to schizophrenia cause cognitive symptoms is an important endeavor, and that's what, that's what I've been working on in the lab. So um, Hollywood shows us the psychosis part of mm -hmm. schizophrenia, but you, um, you have patients that you've taken care of or still taken care of um, that have left a strong impression on you about how schizophrenia should be treated, right? And how it is treated. Yeah, I had a, a patient uh, uh, who um, who suffered from schizophrenia her whole life. Um, the medications that I prescribed for her controlled the psychosis. They controlled the hallucinations. They controlled the delusion, delusions that dramatically disrupted her life. Uh, but the cognitive symptoms, which I could not treat, I didn't have any tool that could really help her with her cognitive symptoms, made it so that she had to take a cab the five blocks, five Manhattan city blocks, it's a very short distance, mm -hmm. from her home to uh, my office because she couldn't figure out how to walk those five blocks, right? Wow. That was the extent of her cognitive symptoms, yeah. So there is definitely a place for more development in how to take care of schizophrenia. That's right. Our goal for patients with schizophrenia is not just controlling the symptoms, but really restoring full function to their lives. And we won't stop from a research perspective or from a clinical care perspective until we can do that. Okay. Well, I want to ask you too um, about ideas that you have about how anxiety and depression 
are treated or should be treated. Um, I, I read that neuroscience researchers have identified anxiety cells in the brains of mice um, that they think also exist in the brains of people. So, and I read that you had referred to this as one brick in the wall of research, which is an interesting way of looking at that. But can you talk to me about what these anxiety cells are and whether this is a useful finding? Yeah, so there are a number of places in the brain where there are specific cell types, which when turned on will cause a mouse to be very anxious. And when turned off will cause that mice to, if you will, relax. Um, and there's some evidence linking at least those brain regions to anxiety symptoms in human beings. So what we don't know yet is whether those specific cells uh, exist in human beings and whether turning on or off those cells in human beings would have the same effects as, it, as they do in, in mice. Um, but that's the hope, and now that we know which cells to look for, uh, we're developing the tools through the NIH-wide Brain Initiative um, uh, to figure out specifically what kinds of cells there are in the human brain and what their functions are. Uh, the Brain Initiative is a, is a big initiative actually funded through an act of Congress, uh, the Cures Act, that uh, seeks to develop tools that we can use the same wonderful technologies that we have to dissect the brain in mice, but bring those technologies into human beings. And so with those tools, we're now developing the capacity to, so far at least, identify cell types in the brain of, of human, brains of human beings, uh, and we hope soon to be able to monitor and modulate those cell types. I don't, I'm, I think it probably wouldn't surprise people. We all know some people who are just more anxious and some people who are just laid back. So if you could figure out and tell us <laughs> why that is, that would be exciting. Yeah. Well, there's some good data on it, both from a genetic standpoint in terms of the genes that make one more likely to be more anxious or less anxious, uh, and also the neural circuitry from neuroimaging studies. But it's delving into the details that will require sure. these advanced tools, and that's what we're hoping to do uh, in the coming years. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, you're also a member of the Hope for Depression Research Foundation Task Force, looking at the neurobiology underlying depression. So I want to ask you, what do you think may lay on the horizon in terms of treatment for depression? Sure. So just a quick correction, I'm no longer a member of the task force. I can't be oh, and be okay. National Institute of Mental Health Director, but it was a, a collaborative effort, research effort that I participated in when I was, uh, before I became the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. So the Hope for Depression Research Task Force is a group of scientists who've come together around the idea that, that our um, models of depression uh, that we use to study the neurobiology are lacking in several key features. Uh, the, the principal one being that depression is a recurrent illness. That is, you don't just get one bout of depression, you get multiple bouts of depression throughout a lifetime. And that the biggest problem in depression is treatment resistance. And most models of depression use treatment response as a way of showing, oh, I have a good model of depression. So uh, the idea is to try to develop models of depression that show this multiple episode phenomenon and also that show actually failing to respond uh, to the appropriate medications. And one of the main things that that group has done is created uh, a, a database where they've been able to compare 
the changes in cellular function in animal models of depression as well as in humans with depression, and they've identified several key targets to come out of that. So that's really an effort to try to, again, understand the brain underpinnings of an illness as accurately as possible, translate from animal models of the disease where you can get into the nitty-gritty to, to actual human patients suffering from depression and use the knowledge from that translation to design new treatments. We've had uh, other experts from here at Upstate Medical University talking about um, depression treatment psychotherapy versus medication. Um, but I also wonder if there's a, a place for prevention of depression. Is that? So actually, that's an area of very um, uh, sort of cutting-edge research. There's some efforts, for example, to inoculate, if you will, individuals against stress as one strategy for prevention of depression. Not all depression is precipitated by stressful events, uh, but, uh, but there uh, many people with depression uh, have depressive episodes that are caused by stressors. Uh, and so trying to understand stress biology is something that the NIMH is very much interested in. And their efforts uh, both using both medications and psychotherapies to try to help prevent the adverse responses to stress. Uh, prevention of depression, though, uh, to some extent, we, we do know many things that could help prevent depression. Preventing child abuse, for example. We know that child abuse raises your risk for subsequent depression later on. So uh, that would be a public health goal, I think, that we could all agree on that would uh, reduce the risk of depression later in life. That ties back to the ABCD study, perhaps. That's correct. ABCD will look at that relationship and, and not just look at the relationship, you know, to the extent that we know it already. Those who have been abused as children, you know, go on to get uh, depression at higher rates, but also be able to look at the brain consequences. So, you know, we know that not all children who have suffered traumas uh, uh, during childhood, not all of them will go on to develop a mental illness later on. Can we see something in that teenage period that either predicts uh, resilience or predicts risk? Um, and, and that will allow us to develop preventative efforts that are based upon those who are really at risk and not, not just everybody. Interesting. Um, you've been quoted in multiple news reports having to do with suicide, um, particularly suicide among people in middle age. Uh, what are the main reasons that people in middle age are looking at suicide as an answer? Uh, that's a, a complex question, and we don't have a full answer for it. But um, there are some indications from a recently released CDC report last spring that suggest um, several factors. One is substance abuse. We know that over half of the people who complete who die by suicide have substances in their system at the time of death, the most common one being alcohol, uh, but also frequently opiates and other drugs of abuse. Okay. Uh, another factor we know is mental illness. About half of people who uh, died by suicide um, in that CDC study had a mental illness that was diagnosed. Um, but we know from other studies that it's likely that the vast majority of the other half who did not have a diagnosed mental illness nonetheless suffered from a mental illness that was undiagnosed. So we know treating mental illnesses is a key part of trying to prevent suicide. But the CDC report also identified that significant 
stressors and lack of social supports also uh, uh, in, increase your risk for death by suicide. So everything that we can do to help support those who are suffering from, uh, you know, whether it be family illnesses or uh, loss of income or uh, other disruptive factors uh, will help prevent suicides. And some of those may be red flags for loved ones of, of people in those situations, maybe. Absolutely. All right. Well, I understand that you and your family visited a town in northeastern Poland this summer, um, learning about your family roots. So, and you wrote, a, you shared this on the NIMH website. So I wanted to see if you can tell us about that trip. Yeah, sure. So I have, a, um, those of who don't know, I have on the NIMH website a regular a series called Director's Messages where I write about mental health issues and I often try to draw upon personal experiences to to flesh out my thoughts about it. So I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to um, visit this town in northeastern Poland called Ostrov Ma- Mazowiecka. I think I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but this is a place where my grandmother lived uh, when she was a child during World War One. And it was a period where the town was being occupied by German soldiers. Uh, and because of the war, of course, there was a, a, a really a, a lack of basic supplies of food, of wood to, to burn to heat houses, and uh, um, a lack of jobs. And it was a challenging time, obviously. My grandmother grew up in that challenging time. And it made me think uh, about what we were doing at NIMH in terms of trying to look at the effects of stress, particularly the effects of stress during childhood, uh, stress and deprivation on subsequent mental health risks. So I, I wrote about uh, our efforts there and contextualized it by uh, my visit to that town. So what is severe chronic stress? Because living in a time like that of adverse, yeah. such adverse conditions, what does that do to a person's health and mental health, or potentially? Well, I think, again, different people will respond differently to the periods of, of stress. But in general, the more severe a stress and the more chronic a stress, the more likelihood that even the most resilient of people will eventually have adverse impacts. Stress raises the risk, of course, for things like post-traumatic stress disorder. That's you know, a, 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 a constellation of symptoms that include high levels of anxiety, high levels of avoiding things, um, and, uh, and often depressive symptoms as well. Um, it also raises your risk for depressive disorders and anxiety disorders, two different classes of disorders that have slightly different constellations of symptoms but share underlying biology. Um, stress also raises your risk for things like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia as well, or at least may precipitate episodes of uh, worsening if you have a predisposition to those disorders. So stress universally really increases your risk for psychiatric disorders. It also increases your risk for physical health disorders as well. So um, it has, and and again, different people respond differently. Um, uh, But again, the the more uh, severe and the more chronic the stress, the, the more likely adverse outcomes. Now I always hear that, you know, children are so resilient. So Children living in adverse conditions, um, would they necessarily fare better or? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting phrase. Children are so resilient. Um, Many children do bounce back quickly from acute adverse effects, at least on the surface. 
but one thing is that even if a child might bounce back in the moment, the risk is there for their lifetime. For a lifetime. Yeah. Huh. So uh, uh, children may be resilient in childhood, um, but the effects can be lasting nonetheless. Is that because does stress have an effect on our genes? Like, does it carry on through the generations if you go through something? Yeah, as... so there's a lot of data now to suggest that stress has effects that are called epigenetic, so not actually genetic. They don't change the genes. Our genes are pretty much uh, written there um, and, and inherited. Um, but there are marks, there are tags that are put on our genes that, um, that instruct the cells of the body, uh, if you will, how to interpret those genes, right? Like, like okay. any reader of a book, you interpret what you read here. The machinery of the cell interprets the genes. And how it interprets those genes are, is influenced by these tags. And we know from a lot of studies, both in humans and in animals, that adverse experiences change the tags, right? So they change how the cells will subsequently interpret those genes. Sometimes that might lead to resilience effects. If the right genes are tweaked a little bit so that the cell interprets them slightly differently but because of the presence of these tags, then someone might actually recover more quickly from stress in the future. But a lot of these tags that are laid down by stressful experiences, especially those laid down early in childhood, turn out to be adverse. So later on, the cells of the adolescent or adult human being will read out those genes differently because of the stressful experience. Wow. And that whole process is called epigenetics. And there's a lot of research going on to try to figure out which of those tags are really helpful and which of those tags are really harmful. And is there anything we can do uh, to change those tags uh, or to reverse the consequences uh, downstream of the interpretations? That's fascinating that it could have such lasting implications. Yeah. So the situation with your grandmother, Nazi Germany, uh, Nazi German occupation, are, are there less severe situations than war that can cause, uh, what I'm thinking of is like poverty. Absolutely. Is, does that have a similar effect? So we know from lots of studies that poverty raises your risk for all sorts of physical and mental health disorders, and in particular poverty during childhood. Um, absolutely can cause it, but not just poverty. Also, uh, physical abuse or mental abuse, even in the presence of resources, uh, will raise your risk for those disorders as well. So stressful experiences short of war, yes. There can uh, be. They absolutely can be long-term adverse, adverse effects. And we think these two are mediated by, at least in part, by these tags, these epigenetic tags. So that sounds like chronic stuff, though. War, poverty. Um, are there acute episodes that can have such a lasting infect, effect as well? So most of the data that we've uh, accumulated over over the years has suggested that the more severe and the more uh, uh, the more uh, frequent uh, the stressors, the more likely for adverse consequences later. And that goes for acute stressors as well as more chronic as well stressors. As, so. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course you can, because of a single episode of abuse, ha develop you know adverse consequences, including mental illnesses. Um, or I should say that a single episode of abuse can raise your risk, but um, you see much greater risk when you have multiple episodes of traumatic experiences. Wow. Well, interesting. Thank you so much for this information and making the time to come talk with us. My guest has been the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Joshua Gordon. 
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.